for today, so I invite you to turn there if you have a Bible or else follow along on the screen when that's displayed. <coughs> this is our last uh, sermon in this series on this book, and uh, let me just bring us back up to speed on what's taken place so far. Um, you have Ruth, the widow from Moab, with her mother-in-law Naomi. Um, in Bethlehem, and it was Naomi's advice to Ruth that she should find herself a husband, or she had a plan to find one for her, I should say. Um, so she takes her up on that, um, and she goes to Boaz, who is a relative of her late husband, and he is a potential redeemer, someone who could fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer in the life of a widow, and marry her, and then she becomes his responsibility. He takes care of her. So um, that's Naomi's plan for Ruth, and Ruth carries it out. Uh, Boaz is interested, as it turns out, and eager to do that, eager to marry her. Uh, But there's a hitch, which is that there's somebody else in line before him who's closer relative who could marry Ruth and uh, be her redeemer. And so we're left hanging at the end of chapter 3, wondering how it's going to turn out, uh, because Boaz is going to resolve this thing right away and find out who's going to redeem Ruth. Uh, So that brings us to chapter 4, which we're going to read and then pray for the Lord to illuminate it to us. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day 
Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. We need, Lord, for you to transport us back in time in our mind's eye to that setting so that this doesn't become just the report of some ancient ritual that has nothing to do with us because this chapter has everything to do with us and with Jesus. And so, Lord, would you make his name great and renowned among us this morning as they prayed in this chapter? And may we be encouraged by the place that you have for us in your great plan of salvation in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this message, No Little People, No Little Places. And that's after a message given by Francis Schaeffer some 45 years ago or so. Francis Schaeffer was a Pennsylvania-born theologian and Christian apologist and pastor. Uh, He started the Labrie Institute in Switzerland, which was a place where skeptics and questioners could come and find out about Christ. He had a great impact in the world. Um, And he wrote, he had a message called No Little People, No Little Places, uh, where he began the message with a dilemma that many Christians have. So let me read what that dilemma is. He says, as a Christian considers the possibility of being a Christian glorified, by which we can mean someone who's reached the potential that God has for you, uh, someone in whom you see the glory of God. As a Christian considers the possibility of being a Christian glorified, often his reaction is, it is wonderful to be a Christian, but I am such a small person, so limited in talents or energy or psychological strength or knowledge that what I do is not really important. The Bible, however, has quite a different emphasis. With God, there are no little people. The book of Ruth, and chapter 4 in particular, is one of those passages that has this emphasis. 
It's a story of little people in a little place doing ordinary things. And yet the impact of their actions far exceeded what they knew. And you might be a believer in Jesus who feels like there isn't much you can do in the world. Much that's important anyway. Much that's going to change anything. You see the world coming apart. It looks like the problems are too huge and your abilities are too small to do anything about it. But I hope that you'll see in our passage that you should not underestimate the eternal significance of doing your so-called little things in your little place in faithful obedience to Jesus. That's what I hope that you'll see uh, by the end of this morning. So let's turn to the text. There's a progression in this chapter that we're going to follow leading up to the lesson that I just described. There are actually three redeemers mentioned in this chapter, each one a little better than the one before. And we're going to find out who they are and, and see the story sort of through them. Uh, so let's focus on the first Redeemer. He's in verses 1 to 6. And we can call him the Redeemer with no name. The Redeemer with no name. Verse 1, Boaz went up to the city gate and he waited. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, there's something striking about how we are introduced to this Redeemer, this relative who has first dibs on marrying Ruth if he wants to. Uh, we never get his name, even though he's mentioned several times, once in, in the chapter 3 and several times in this chapter. Um, he's called the Redeemer. Or friend. Uh, and even the label friend is a little more specific than the original Hebrew language makes it because it's a generic term that means so and so. Uh, he's Mr. So and so. Uh, it seems that the writer of Ruth either didn't know his name or intentionally covered it up, even though he's a He's a prominent character in the story, in particular chapter 4. And the reason that sticks out is because all the other people in the book of Ruth who are relatives of Naomi have names, every last one of them. So you start out with Elimelech and Naomi, and they have two sons, Melon and Chilion, and their sons have wives, Orpah and Ruth. And then we meet Boaz, this relative, and then eventually he has a son named Obed. And then you have this genealogy of Boaz, which has all these names in it at the end. But this relative has no name. It's rather odd, kind of sticks out. Why is he anonymous? It begs the question. And I think we're going to see the connection when we understand this man's character and the choices that he makes when it comes to his opportunity with Ruth. So let's look at the, his part in this, this transaction that takes place at the city gate. Uh, in verses 1 to 6, it plays out. Basically, there's a formal legal business meeting that's held at the city gate uh, where you can officially exercise the right of redemption with witnesses. Legal uh, transactions in those days were done at the city gate because I'm supposing that's where you could collect enough people to have a meeting because everybody's got to go in and out. Uh, to the market and so forth. So it's, it's a good place to find everybody 
and gather your witnesses that you need and the important people involved. So that's where Boaz goes. He's got official business to do. He wants to redeem Ruth. Or if he can't do it, then this other guy uh, can. Um, and he can fulfill the spirit of the law of the Leveret marriage, which we learned about previously. Uh, so Boaz sits in the city gate. Lo and behold, the Redeemer comes by, and Boaz has him sits down. He gets the witnesses involved, and the business meeting is in, is in session, we could say. And so Boaz presents his proposition. Um, but he doesn't start by talking about Ruth at all. He starts by talking about a piece of land. Uh, as it turns out, Naomi is selling her late husband's parcel of land. So this is new information. We didn't, we didn't know about this before. But it makes sense. She's an older widow. Uh, she has few prospects for making a living, probably too old to get a husband. Um, but she has something of value. She's got her husband's property. And so she's selling it so she can live off the proceeds. That makes sense. It's kind of like cashing in your retirement fund. Um, we're going to come back to why Boaz opens with this issue first, but suffice to say it's part of his overall strategy to get the girl. <laughs> but bringing up the land issue was appropriate at this meeting because buying a piece of land that a poor relative has to sell is actually one of the functions of a kinsman redeemer. Leviticus 25.25 says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So the thinking there is to, to keep it into the extended family at least, to keep the property within the extended family, a redeemer comes in, buys it so that it isn't lost. Um, that, that's the idea of it. And of course, in this case, Ruth will get the profit from it, so she'll be taken care of. So a kinsman redeemer would do that. Um, so this is legitimate for Boaz to bring up at this meeting um, with Mr. So-and-so. So he offers it to him. He says, uh, there's this property, and you're first in line if you want to buy it. And he does. He wants to. Uh, it's a good deal for him. Because if he buys it, he gets to add it to his inheritance. And uh, he doesn't have to top anybody's bid because he's got first rights. Uh, this is sort of like if, you're, if you find a nice house on the street and you really want that house, uh, but, the, you know, but the market's going crazy and everybody's buying houses, but, but you have this exclusive offer. You have first dibs. You want to buy it, you can have it. And so you don't have to bid, outbid everybody and give a second offer and a third offer. You can just get it for what you want becomes yours. So it's a pretty sweet deal that this guy is being offered, and he likes it. He says, I will redeem it. I will buy this land. And then Boaz brings in the punchline, sort of an oh, by the way, little moment here. Verse 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now that changes things. You see, this land comes with strings attached. Uh, if you're going to act as the kinsman redeemer for the land, you also have to act as the kinsman redeemer for the widow. And then raise up a son for her if God grants it. 
And get this, the son will own the land. It won't be yours. It will be his. Because by rights, this land belongs to Elimelech's family. Elimelech and his son, both of whom are now dead. So it'll go to the son that's born between you and Ruth. That will be his property, his inheritance. None of it will belong to you. That means Redeemer is going to spend years and years taking care of Ruth and her son, spending money, taking care of the land, and in the end, the son gets the whole thing and none of it becomes Mr. So-and-so's property. So what looked at first like a sweet real estate deal for himself turns out to be mercy ministry to a widow. And he wasn't bargaining on that. <laughs> he wasn't interested in that. Land, yes. <laughs> Widow, no. <laughs> so he says no to Boaz. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. So now we see the heart of Mr. So-and-so here. We see what's driving him. We see what's motivating him in this meeting. He's worried about his own inheritance. He wants to protect what he has. He doesn't want to do anything that's going to cost him time and money and labor and sacrifice for somebody else. So he has a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. What's in it for me? And now we know why we don't know his name. It's because this man's self-interest wrote him out of the story of the great work that God was doing. As we'll see, the son that would now be born of Ruth and Boaz turned out to be very significant in God's eternal plan of redemption. A plan that is reflected in genealogy at the end of the chapter. But this man turned his back on the opportunity. He turned his back on being part of that legacy. His name won't show up in the genealogy or in the Bible that we're still reading thousands of years ago. He chose his temporary inheritance over an eternal one. He chose his earthly inheritance over a heavenly one as a participant in the great work of God. So there's a lesson here for us because we can be tempted this way. We can have a what's in it mentality. What's in it for me mentality about things. We can approach life that way, especially when it comes to serving when it's going to cost us something. We can have a what's in it for me if I serve in the church. Uh, what's in it for me if I spend my Saturday helping somebody that I don't even know? Uh, what's in it for me if I go to Colfax Avenue and hand out food? Or if I go down to Rancho 3M or, or, or donate to it? Or what's in it for me if I reach out to a neighbor who's got lots of problems? Or maybe who doesn't seem to have any problems? I'm not saying that you have to say yes to any of those specific things. You don't have to say yes um, because you can't say yes to every opportunity that there is. Uh, but we know the mindset, don't we? What's in it for me is an attitude that makes us say no to things that God would have us say yes to. Ministry opportunities and people that he brings into our lives that we have a legitimate opportunity and ability to help. 
by saying no to these things like Mr. So-and-so, we can be missing our opportunity to be a part of a great thing that God is doing for His glory and for the fame of Jesus Christ. Things that will be remembered and rewarded by God Himself. The way of God is so counterintuitive, isn't it? It's the one who jeopardizes his earthly inheritance that actually gets the better inheritance. It's in giving that you receive. It's the one who loves his life who loses it. And the one who hates his life in this world who will keep it to eternal life. It all seems so backwards to our natural minds, but that's the way of eternal rewards. And the way God works his great plan of salvation in the world. Well, that's the first Redeemer, Mr. No, Mr. no Name, Mr. So-and-so. But there's a second Redeemer, and he has a different mentality than the first one. We can call him the Redeemer with a good name. The Redeemer with a good name. I'm talking about Boaz. He becomes the focus of verses 7 to 12, as Mr. So-and-so gives Boaz the green light to redeem Ruth. And I have to say that Boaz was pretty impressive in how he finessed this business meeting to his advantage. (laughs) I mean, he understood Mr. So-and-so's psychology. (laughs) Uh, I don't think we can say he tricked him uh, by giving the carrot of the land followed by the strings attached regarding Ruth because everything that he said was completely true. Uh, It's just that Boaz brought the information to him in stages such that when he, when he mentioned the need to redeem Ruth, the man would see it as a liability and not as an asset, which is exactly what Boaz wanted him to think, because Boaz wants the girl. <laughs> That's brilliant stuff when you think about it. But anyway, the guy says no. He gives the right of redemption to Boaz, who exercises it immediately. And Boaz is the polar opposite of Mr. and so-and-so. Here's how things play out. Uh, the guy hands his sandal over, gives it to Bo- Boaz. We're told that's the official way that you sealed the deal. Today we would sign a piece of paper and it would be all written down in a contract. Um, but this is official now. It's now Boaz's court. Um, and just to make sure the witnesses are clear about what all this means, Boaz recounts the transaction in detail uh, that this day he buys Naomi's field and he buys Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, to be his wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So unlike Mr. No-Name, Boaz is not concerned about jeopardizing his inheritance. In fact, he's intent on securing the inheritance for somebody else, for the family line of Elimelech. He's not bothered by the fact that if he has a son with Ruth, that the son will get the land and not him. He's okay with that. This is selfless. Yes, he is probably in love with Ruth. Take that into account. Uh, But that doesn't take away from the fact that this is going to cost him. It's going to cost him time and money and commitment with no financial return on his investment. But he's willing to lay it out for, for the sake of someone else. And moreover, keep in mind that Ruth is from Moab. The, the natural en- enemies of Israel. 
people not normally welcomed by this society. He even makes a point to call her Ruth the Moabite so that everybody knows that he's doing this with eyes wide open. Um, He's marrying her as she is with all of her potential baggage, uh, not as some idealized dream of who she is. Isn't that very reflective of the Savior's love for us? He claims you for himself at a cost. With all your baggage, with all my baggage, with all of our issues. And he does it gladly, he does it freely, that he gives himself for people who are his natural enemies. As Romans 5.10 says of believers, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Boaz is very Christ-like in how he approached the whole thing with Ruth. And unlike Mr. So-and-so, Boaz had a place in the great story of salvation that God was writing, and the Lord rewarded him. Boaz wasn't out to make a name for himself, but he ended up getting one anyway, a good name from the people who recognized the godly nature of what he was doing. The witnesses pray a blessing over him, which includes, may you be renowned in Bethlehem. In other words, may you be famous. May your name be well known all over the city. And it happened because we we still know his name. (laughs) We're still talking about his faithful deeds. This is another encouragement for us to press on in the day-to-day faithful service and the opportunities that God brings to us. To fight the what's-in-it-for-me mentality. Um, because by, by not caring about your name, you actually get a good name when you're doing it for Christ. What God gives you is better than what we try to secure for ourselves. Now, following Christ won't always get you a good name among the people of the world. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Faithfulness to Christ will not produce universal praise and a good name. You should be concerned if it does, because it probably means you're not being faithful. But there are people among whom you will get a good name for following the Lord, and that is among the people who love God. And that is not a bad thing when it happens. In fact, we're encouraged to want a good name. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Uh, And you get that good name by following the Lord in faithfulness in the stuff that he's given you to do. Not that we pursue it as an end in itself, but it is a byproduct of having lived a life for Christ. It's not a bad thing that you know names like Billy Graham and John Piper, and Nancy Guthrie, and Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, They are renowned, right, among Christian circles. And that's okay because we need examples of people who are sinners like us, but who have received grace to live and act in a manner worthy of the gospel. It means there's hope for us. It means God really changes people. What a terrible world we would have if there were no concrete examples, no renowned names of people who are godly. 
And those examples don't need to be famous missionaries or teachers or pastors. You and I can be those examples for others as people who love Jesus. Boaz wasn't a teacher. Boaz wasn't a high official. Boaz was not a priest of Israel. He was just a farmer, but he received a good name. And so did Ruth. They said of her, May the Lord make the woman like Rachel and Leah, who put together, who together built up the house of Israel. And the Lord did make her like them, as we'll see as we talk about Obed. Uh, she has a name as good as Boaz. is actually probably better because the book is named after her. <laughs> But who was she? She was a poor, vulnerable widow um, from a foreign country, pretty much the lowest level of society at the time. But we're still saying her name. You can leave a good name for others as well as somebody who followed the Lord. You can be remembered as the grandparent that always read me stories about Jesus. (laughs) You can be that sibling that was willing to sacrifice for Christ. You can be that youth that was willing to take steps of faith for the sake of others and for the gospel. It doesn't take money. It doesn't take power. It doesn't take a certain high position in society. All it takes is day by day leaning into the Lord, repenting of our sins, and trusting in God's forgiveness and His new mercies every day. That's what makes for a good name. And you know, even if nobody ever knows your name, and nobody ever sees what you do in faithfulness to the Lord, there is someone who sees and someone who gives you a good name, and that's the Lord himself. He sees in secret, and he rewards in secret. Here's what he has to say to believers in Revelation 3.5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the holy angels. How could anything be better than that? Than to have Jesus himself say your name before God the Father as a way of saying, this person's with me. This person is in. This person I love, this person will be forever with us. There can be no better name. Nobody else who can say your name in a more serious and important setting than that. And that's what he does because he loves us. So Boaz is a redeemer with a good name and he reflects our redeemer. But he isn't the last redeemer in this chapter. There is one more. We can call him the redeemer with the greatest name. So who is he? Well, we find him in the rest of the chapter, beginning verse 13. After this very public transaction of the previous verses, Boaz takes Ruth, and she becomes his wife, and it says the Lord gave her conception, which is a hint that she probably wasn't able to conceive with her former husband, even though they were married up to 10 years. Um, But now the Lord has given her conception. This is God breaking in again into the story directly. Uh, he's doing something here. She gets pregnant by Boaz and bears a son. And then this son becomes the object of a great deal of excitement right away. Uh, Particularly regarding uh, what he means for Naomi. 
Remember Naomi. She said of herself at one time, she went away full, she came back empty. She was so bitter about how things turned out when she moved to Moab and that she had to come back to Bethlehem. Uh, She had to sell her field in order to survive. Naomi had a hard life. But now her fortunes are changed. Things are looking up. Her field is sold. And so she's got some money. She has an heir who's going to inherit it. She has a daughter-in-law who loves her and a husband who's a fine man uh, who's going to provide for her and for Ruth. Um, She has a grandson who's going to be there for her in her old age. So her story has a happy ending. Everybody's excited for Naomi. And the women say to her in, in verse 14, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. So let's stop and ask the question, who is the Redeemer that they're talking about? The Lord has not left Naomi this day without a Redeemer. Who is Naomi's Redeemer? We might think that they mean Boaz. Because after all, he's the one that paid the price of redemption and for her field and who married her daughter-in-law to raise up a son to carry on the family name. Boaz is the redeemer who's entered into their lives and, and turned everything around for good. So we might think that the women are rejoicing over Boaz being Naomi's redeemer as well as Ruth's redeemer. He is a redeemer. But that's not the, re- the redeemer the women are talking about. Listen to the rest of what they say in verse 15. He, that is Naomi's Redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. That is, given birth to Naomi's Redeemer. Naomi's Redeemer is Ruth's son to whom the woman gave the name Obed. This son will be the restorer of life to Naomi. This son will be the nourisher of her old age. This son is the gift of her daughter-in-law who loves her more than seven sons. So it's the newborn son who's her greater redeemer. He receives even more attention than Boaz in this story. So much so that in verse 17, they say a son has been born to Naomi, uh, not born by her, but born for her. This is Obed that we're talking about. Now, why is that significant? It's because of who Obed points to. Among his descendants, among Obed's genealogy, there were coming other sons who would also be born in Bethlehem who would bring great rescue and redemption, not only for Naomi and her family, but for God's people from every nation. Obed is like a down payment on things to come. Verse 17 says, This son who was born to Naomi, actually to Ruth, was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's King David. Remember, this is the time of the judges when there's no king in Israel. And Obed is the down payment that God is sending a king, a king after his own heart, a king who's going to bring Israel wholly into the promised land and defeat all their enemies and and, and rise up. 
This is what God is doing. The, the same God who gave conception to Ruth is bringing this king down the road, King David, who's going to sit on a throne over his people, over God's people. That's coming. But God's plan was bigger than that because also like Obed, there was another son who would be born in Bethlehem. Many generations later, we sang about him already. Unto us a son is born. Unto us a son is given. That's from Isaiah 9, 6. The son whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. That is the great Redeemer, Jesus. He was going to be born there. Obed is, is like the, the forerunner in this same little city, the same place called Bethlehem. But later, God's going to send his true king to save his people. Little did Ruth and Boaz know what would come from their seemingly small and ordinary acts of faithfulness to God. Little did they know that through them, the Lord was ultimately going to bring Jesus into the world. And that leads me back to what I said at the beginning and to the title of this message, No Little People, No Little Places, which I want to conclude with. When we look back on the story of Ruth and this chapter in particular, what do we see? We know that it happened in the time of the judges, and that's when Israel is at war with other nations and often in peril and the, the power swings back and forth. Sometimes they're overrun and they serve other kings and then sometimes they win and, and it's just turmoil. Hundreds of years of this and a downward spiral of moral depravity as people are abandoning their God. And it looks like the promise that God made to Abraham that in him would all the nations of the earth be blessed. It looks like that's just dwindling away and there's no rescue from within or from without. But in that, with that in the background, we have this story of a wandering widow and a farmer. Why is that there? It's not because we need another romance story. It's because God is saying... My purposes will stand, and I will work in the little places, in the little people, doing the ordinary things to bring about my great plan of redemption. The little town of Bethlehem wasn't even a big city, not even an important city, really. A hardworking widow who takes care of her mother-in-law a farmer who's just running his business with integrity and godliness, a courtship of sorts in a marriage, a baby boy that they have together and raise, ordinary things, things that you and I do, things that don't seem all that important in the big scheme of things, and yet it's through their lives that the Lord was working to bring rescue for an entire nation and ultimately all the nations. The impact of Ruth and Boaz's day-to-day -day faithfulness far exceeded what they knew. Through it, God changed the world. And that's why we have this book in the Bible. To show us that there aren't any little people in any little places in God's economy. Because His purposes run through that pathway. 
It's not in the big story. It's not in what you're reading on CNN. It's what's going on in your house. <laughs> it's what's going on in your job. It's what's going on when you teach kids in the classrooms on Sundays. It's those things that God says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You shouldn't underestimate the eternal significance of doing your so-called little things in your little place in faithful obedience to Jesus. So how can you have impact in our day and in our generation? Be faithful in the ordinary things where God's planted you. Raise your kids to know Christ. Serve in this church. Do your job with integrity as a visible Christian. Have compassion on the stranger. The eternal impact could be greater than you know. It doesn't mean we never take risks. It doesn't mean we don't step out into the unknown and the uncomfortable. It took a lot of faith for Ruth to leave her country and go to Bethlehem. It took faith for her to go into the fields where she could be assaulted. It took faith for Boaz to take on Ruth and her mother-in-law as his responsibility. We walk by faith, but we do it as ordinary people, responding to the next thing that the Lord puts in front of us. And you may be surprised to find out when you're with the Lord in heaven just what he did with your life. He's weaving it into his ultimate plan to save his church and to bring in the new heavens and the earth. I mean, just close with Francis Schaeffer, what he said at the end of his message. I think it sums this one up as well. We must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight, there are no little people in no little places. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Those who think of themselves as little people in little Little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under his lordship in the whole of life, may, by God's grace, change the flow of our generation. I think he's right. Let's pray. So help us, Lord, to be faithful and to not, um, to not be discouraged if we don't think that we're in something great, if we don't have huge numbers or visible impact, I doubt that Ruth and Boaz had any idea what was coming when they had a baby. And we won't always know either. So help us, Lord, to have faith that you remember and you use everything that we do for Christ as part of your great plan to save the church from the world and to bring in a new world. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.